Let's turn to Daniel chapter 11. And uh, while we're turning there, I just want to mention that uh, we had had some people uh, ask us about uh, baptisms. That we're, we're going to finalize a date in August for our baptisms. We're going to give plenty of time for that uh, to let people know about it in all of our congregations and all our ser- services on Saturday night and Sunday. So, uh, but it's, it's an exciting thing to keep doing. I'll tell you why it's even more exciting now than ever before. Because the Lord Jesus is coming soon. And because He's coming soon, we, we, we need to take every opportunity to make public confession of our faith in Jesus. And that's certainly one thing that baptism is. It's a public confession of something Christ has already done in us. So I, I really encourage you to pray for those people who, who want to be baptized uh, <clears throat> in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Uh, pray, for, pray if you haven't been baptized or you want to be baptized. And uh, it's going to be... It's, it's always a great, uh, great event and a great time for the church. So we'll talk more about it later. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, uh, the first part of this particular chapter dealt with, with a history lesson on uh, the Grecian Empire that uh, overran the Medo-Persian Empire. And... We spent a lot of time looking at two parts of a four-part uh, kingdom. And uh, the two parts that we focused our attention upon last week and the history of those kings of, of the south and the kings of the north, uh, which would have been the Ptolemies in the south, the Ptolemy being the, uh, uh, the group that settled in Egypt, and then the Seleucids who were the larger of the group and the larger, actually the larger piece of the, of the land extending from all of what is called Asia Minor and Turkey all the way further east, all the way to, uh, uh, to Mesopotamia, to the uh, Fertile Crescent, to uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and all of that, that whole big section. We'll see a little map in a moment. Those were the Seleucids and those were the kings of the north. And uh, what we learned by going through these uh, passages was that there was a lot of intrigue. There was a lot of drama. You know, you talk about the Greeks having, you know, the Greek tragedies and the Greek comedies. I think they had more tragedies than, than comedies, you know. But I mean, those were, those were the ancient uh, um, soap operas of the day. And I mean, they, uh, they, boy, they milked them sometimes too, as we saw in some of those uh, uh, stories that we told. All from history, by the way, all true. Well, we came to uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, Alexander the Great is where we started because he was the one who conquered the, uh, the Medo-Persians and then uh, became sad because he had, he couldn't, there were no more kingdoms to conquer. You know, he felt that he had conquered the whole uh, of the Western and Eastern world. And uh, then after that were all these other kings, uh, generals, that took four parts of the larger kingdom. Uh, but anyway, uh, we went from Alexander the Great to a person named Antiochus III the Great. And um, we saw in all of these battles between Egypt and, and Syria, because Syria was really the, what, what it was called, uh, that whole section. But uh, the battles between Egypt and Syria were significant then for one major reason that's significant now, is that they, they did everything in their battles going through a land called Israel. 
Now, a lot of people will call it Palestine. I refuse to call it that because there's never been a Palestine. Palestine was only named Palestine by a German, I'm sorry, a Roman, could have been a German later, but a Roman uh, general who, uh, and, and uh, emperor actually, who, who hated the Jews so much that he named that area called Israel as Palestine after the Philistines who were the greatest enemies of, of Israel. And that was done actually by, I believe it was on 116 A.D., 116 uh, in, in the, you know, after uh, Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection. So I don't like to use Palestine. And uh, people will say, well, they're Palestinians today. That's what they call themselves, but they're not Palestinians. Right, I'm not going to go into a long detail. I've done it before. I'll do it again another time. But the, but the point is, there's no Palestine. And especially there was no Palestine in the Old Testament. There was no Palestine in the, book, in, in the prophets and in the law and the prophets. And there, weren't any, there wasn't a Palestine. So we don't call it that. Okay, so get, get, under, get an understanding here. The land was called the pleasant land, the glorious land. There's only one land. It's called Israel. And that's what this, this was. And they were right in the middle of these wars. They had just come back from, from captivity. And now they're having to deal with a greater... Uh, risk to their lives, to their existence. And how many times does Israel find itself clinging to existence, fighting for existence? Well, we see it again here in this particular chapter as well. From Alexander the Great, uh, or I'm sorry, I keep calling him Alexander, Antiochus the Great, came his son who really didn't rule uh, very much. And he, we actually saw him in verse 20. So that's where I want to start with the son of with the son of, um, with the son of, Ale- of uh, Antiochus the third, who was called Antiochus the Great, we're going to start with that here in verse twenty. There shall arise in his place, that is, in the place of, Ale- of uh, Antiochus the Great, or the third, there is there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. The glorious kingdom being Israel, imposing of taxes. This is what this one particular son, Seleucus of Philopatra, I believe was, was his name, uh, did. But notice that within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And that's exactly what happened. Someone came and, and poisoned him. Uh, again, this is a little bit of that intrigue. I talked about it last week, so if you were here, you heard about it. And uh, eventually, you know, he didn't die in anger. You, you know, he wasn't in battle. He, he just got poisoned because... Uh, they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't want him in in uh, ruling. So that opens a door. That opens a door in verse 21, where it says, "And in his place shall arise a vile person, a, a contemptible person." Is really the the uh, the uh, uh, the meaning of vile. And in his place shall arise a, a a vile person to to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. Uh, primarily, that means he wasn't the one called to be the king. Uh, you know, he wasn't in the line to be the king here. So he will not give, uh, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Uh, we've talked about the intrigue of all of these soap operas. All right, well, we're going to stop and look very quickly at this particular map here. Let me see if I have my pointer. Okay, so we know where we're at. So, kings of the north are the Seleucid dynasty or the Seleucid kingdom. That's all of this yellow area here. 
if you all see it from over here, okay. And then uh, there is the king of the south. That's all of this area. That, uh, actually, the Ptolemaic Empire was this purple area here. Okay, so all of this was open. Notice what's here. That's Israel. Every time these guys got into battle, look at, look at how they, uh, where they went. All right. Pergamum was, one, was uh, the Thrace uh, area of, uh, of one of the other minor uh, uh, kings and then Macedon. And they would kind of, uh, of uh, choose who they were going to kind of help out because, uh, uh, you know, whoever gave them the most money or, or land or whatever. Okay. So that always happened. There's Jerusalem right here. And uh, Macedon, Pergamum, Seleucus. Ptolemy, we only concern ourselves with Seleucus or Seleucus and, and uh, Ptolemy there. All right. Let's go on. One of the reasons why the critics of the book of Daniel have attacked it so radically and so adamantly down through the years is their claim that no one could write so many accurate details in advance about so many people, places, and events unless they were written hundreds of years after the events had taken place. Do you, all, do you all know what that means? That the, the critics are saying, Daniel could not have written this because he wasn't living in the time when all these things happened. Well, no, he didn't. Because that's where God comes in. That's where prophecy comes in. All right, keep that in mind because I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so, in effect, they're denying the reality of prophecy itself. They're denying the, the reality of prophecy. And that's a tremendous claim by the majority of critics since most of them are seminary-trained theologians and claiming to be Christians. Now, I have no problem telling you that. Because the Scriptures tell us, Jesus Himself told us to beware of false teachers, to beware of false prophets. The apostles would teach us to beware of false teachers and to beware of false prophets. The, the prophets in the Old Testament uh, warned us to beware of false prophets. So, everything has to stand by the Word of God. But the fulfillment of prophecy for every true believer in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy is just one proof of the reliability and the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. And simply because, and listen to this, an all-knowing God can and should know future events. Don't you agree? An all-knowing God can and should know all future events. A God that knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. That's the God we love. That's the God we serve. Isn't that the God that we want to see at the end of all of this chaos that we've been living in the middle of for so many years? So, an all-knowing God that can and should know future events with great accuracy... And he can also guide his servants in recording them for all to see and know. And that's what the Word of God is. For all to see and know. I'm just, I'm just once again laying a foundation for us to understand the importance of these uh, uh, history lessons that we find. We're going to go through actually another one here today in just a moment. But even in the second chapter of Daniel, turn to uh, Daniel chapter 2. Even in the second chapter of Daniel, we are told by the prophet himself, and I want you to listen. Daniel is the one who says this. He says, He, speaking of God, He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, 
and the light dwelleth with him. He knows what's in the darkness. Now, what is dark for us today? Well, we could say there's a lot of dark things around us, but what I mean by that is, what is dark for us today, but what is yet to come? I mean, we can, we can believe what the Word of God says, but we still haven't seen like God has seen. So it's still kind of in the dark for us, but God has given us light because He is light, and He's the one that reveals the things that are coming. So what a, what a lesson we're getting by studying prophecy. What a lesson we've been getting by studying the prophetic chapters of Scripture that deal with the coming of Antichrist, the coming of, of all these kind of calamities that are going on. I'm not, I'm not excited about that, by the way. I'm not telling you that. But it's part of the whole picture. Because the most important thing is, why, what these things mean is that Jesus Himself is also coming, and He's coming again, and He's coming soon. That's the reason I get excited about prophecy. Not because, you know, it's, 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 you know, intriguing, but because it's essential for us to understand that Jesus said, I am coming again. And he tells us what's going to happen when he comes. He tells us what's going to happen between the time that he takes the church out of the way and then eventually, seven years later, comes with the church to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. All of these things are so essentially important for us to to grab hold of. So here we go. He reveals those deep and secret things. We ourselves as believers and followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... We have no problem with whatsoever in accepting God's prophetic word. Amen. I, I don't have a problem with God's word. Sometimes it might not make a whole lot of sense to me, but, you know, that's why we dig a little bit. And if, if, if we dig and we, we still don't have an answer, the Lord says, it's okay. The deep things belong to me. And when the time comes, I'll reveal them. But what you do know, be excited about. What you have been given and what has been revealed to you, get excited about those things. So we don't have a problem with, 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 uh, with the prophetic word. In fact, if you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm, I'm, I've actually been giving you a kind of a brief lesson on, on the prophetic word of God and the importance of the prophetic word of God to all believers. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, just beginning with verse 19, Peter said, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, the word that God gives us prophetically is a word that you can count on, you can bank on, you can trust, you can stand on. And then he says, Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Take heed to this till that light reveals itself, until that one great person that we call the day star arises in our hearts. That's Jesus. And look at verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. In other words, you know, there are some people who will take certain, certain verses of Scripture out of context and they'll make a private interpretation of that verse for their, for their denomination or for their cult or whatever it might be. We can't do that. That's the reason why we go from Genesis to Revelation, because it's not a private interpretation. How many of you know that in, that in the Word of God there's only one interpretation of the Bible? How many of you know that? Okay, tonight you know that, so how many of you know that now? There's only one interpretation. You know whose it is? It's God's. That's right. It's God's interpretation. 
That's what we seek for. That's what we pray for. God, give us, reveal to us your interpretation. It has to, you know, it's going to fit perfectly. Uh, things have changed a lot in, in the 40 or 50 years. Well, I'm going to say 40, not 50 for me, but in the 40 years that I've been reading the Scriptures and studying the Scriptures, a lot has changed. New players have taken place when we study prophecy. And, and, I, and I, I'm here to tell you that back in the 70s when we, we thought Jesus was coming right back then. You know, there was the Cold War that we were in. There was Vietnam. There was all kinds of other things going on with the Russians. And, the, and so we started saying, well, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 talks about Russia. Well, it does to some extent. But, it's, you know, when we get there, we're going to realize that it's not just Russia. And then, of course, we didn't even see it coming. We really didn't see a lot of what Islam was going to become later on. All of a sudden, we have new players, but the fact of the matter is they're not new players, they're old players. They've been around for a long time. And it's just been under the, kind of under the radar until now. So God is revealing. What's the name of the book of Revelation? What does it mean? A revealing. He's revealing these things. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Am I getting too excited with you? I'm just a little bit excited here. I wonder if it was that shot I got today. Uh, you know, uh, you know what I'm uh, so I'm all excited. Okay. Know this first. No prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of God. For the pro- let me say, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Didn't come by will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What is that telling you? A lot of people today say, oh, the word of God is just written by men. What is Peter telling us? Man didn't write the Word of God. It was revealed unto man, yes, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God revealed these things to them. Let's never forget that. That is why we need today, as the church of Jesus Christ, to seek the Word, uh, to seek the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And we need to ask the Lord to keep pouring His Spirit out upon us each and every day. We pray that before we come out here. Lord, let Your Spirit come. Let Your Spirit move. Let Your Spirit teach. As we learn about the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, we learn that the, the, the Spirit does all of those things. He comes. He blesses. He teaches. He instructs. And He strengthens us. And we need that strength in these last days. That is why the prophecies of Daniel are quite important. I mean, they're, you know, we, important sometimes doesn't seem to be enough of a word to, to give us the strength of the, the necessity that we have for the Word of God. For example, the lessons that we learned in the historical parts of Daniel chapter 11 last week, you know, the history of the Ptolemy and the, and the Seleucids, uh, involving the relationship between Egypt and Syria, should have taught us this one thing. It should have taught us this, that the nature of man has not changed over thousands of years. The nature of man has not changed over thousands of years. No matter what man has done technologically, academically, medically, no matter what man has done, politically. In fact, politically it's gotten worse. Geopolitically it's gotten even worse than worse. But we should have learned in all of that that we read last week and some of what we're going to read today. 
The nature of man has not changed over thousands of years. And who, and who would have thought that they would be changed now by man's efforts? Who would have thought? We thought that they would be. At least man did. Man who trusts in man. Humanists. They want to believe in God. They want to believe in the power uh, of man. And if they would only take a look at one thing, if they only took a look at how we began and how we end as people, when we're born, what can we do? Practically nothing but cry and eat and spit and a few other things. Then we grow. And if we're taught well, you know, we, we grow with a little understanding that uh, you know there's some good things and bad things, so we have to be right and we have to be wrong. I mean, we have to be right so that we're not wrong. In other words, we're taught about right and wrong. We're taught about good and bad. Then we grow and then we learn and we graduate or move on in the world, become professional in one thing or another or Maybe not, but we, maybe we, be just, we just work. But, but, but you know this a progression? Then we think that we got something. Then we think that we've achieved something in our life. And whether we're up here or right here or here, we still came from here. Not, you know, we got up to here. And then we lived our life, and then, you know, we get, start getting older. And then all of a sudden we start kind of going down a little bit, forgetting things, you know. Experiencing a lot of physical things, struggles. <laughs> and depending on how long God gives you, if you've taken this whole cycle, almost like going in a circle, you know, and then you're put away. In one way or another, you're put away. Life has ended. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. That's man living under heaven and not knowing what's above. Sad, isn't it? Man's efforts. What does Solomon call it? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. In fact, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm not going to talk about vanities of vanities. Uh, those are just going to happen. But I, I want to point out something about prophecy here. Because there's something about prophecy in the book of Ecclesiastes that we need to know. Especially where we are now, where we're going to be next week. That's the teaser. Bring you back next week. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. Solomon says, The thing... That has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which, is, is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. What has been will happen again. Ah, that is a prophetic principle, folks. What has happened is going to happen again. The thing that has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. There's no new thing under the sun. Look at verse 10. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. You ever see new and improved? New and improved tide? 
You know, it washed your clothes good before. Now it's improved. Does it wash it better? I don't know. But you pay more for it. So, is it really new? Might be improved, but it's not new. Still cleans clothes. Notice, it has been already of old time, which was before us. There's nothing new under the sun. But the prophetic issue here is, what has happened is going to happen again. Time and time again in prophecy we see that principle uh, lived out. So let's also remember that the Lord is the Lord of history. And He continues to work out His plans and purposes for man. He is the Lord of the present, which means He's still on the throne. Amen? Our God is still on the throne. And He is the Lord of eternity. And we must remember what is said in Habakkuk, Habakkuk, that's the best way to pronounce that word, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, where it says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is coming. Amen. I'm excited. I'm excited. Yay. Yay. All right. Good. You guys aren't excited because it was a long day for you and you're tired. And I can hear you say, come on, Charlie, just, just teach. Okay. Antiochus is the next person. Not Antiochus the Great. Antiochus the Fourth. Epiphanes. As a matter of fact, he gave himself that name. The Glorious One. The Illustrious One. We'll talk about that later. We've already talked about it actually before. Daniel 11, verses 20 to 22, There shall arise in the place uh, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. That's the son of Antiochus the Great. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person. Vile, contemptible. And we're talking about really stinker. You know, kind of really bad. Uh, There's a lot of words that we can put there. Uh, One that comes to mind is um, full of sin. Full of sin. So we'll, we'll we'll keep that one in mind here. To whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Let's add a verse. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown, from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Verse 22 is very critical to our understanding of what's going on with Israel, so uh, keep your finger on verse 22. This vile person that is mentioned here has been mentioned before in, in the book of Daniel. It is Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. And it's important for us to read it just so you can get the, uh, you know, the remembrance of what we studied before. It is part of the vision that was given to Daniel. In verse 9 it says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn. This is speaking of the beasts. Out of one of them came forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Uh, being uh, Israel, of course. And it waxed great, in other words, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. That's an interesting verse when it talks about really the host of heaven and angels. Because if, if you can remember when we were studying about, about the, uh, 
the princes of Persia, for example, the, you know, whatever the demon is that, that was overseeing Persia, and Michael and, and Gabriel both were fighting with, with that particular angel. It gives us a kind of a little picture here from the spiritual standpoint. Uh, and it waxed great even to the hosts of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. But that's also talking about Israel. And we talked about that back in chapter 8. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken, was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. This is talking about the abomination of desolation, which we're going to talk about again in just a moment. And then in verse 12 it says, And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, because of sin. Notice, it cast down the truth to the ground. In other words, they stomped on the word of God, and it practiced and prospered. And then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Of course, we, again, we don't want to spend too much time on that, but we studied it back in chapter 8. This is all about Antiochus Epiphanes. His beginnings were nearly insignificant. If you remember back in verse 9, it says that he was a little horn. That, that resembles some sense of insignificance. Uh, and his overtaking the throne by cunning, craftiness, and deviousness made him all the more vile. The way that he achieved what he wanted to achieve uh, in his life. Making a long story short, Antiochus, who wasn't the rightful heir to the Seleucid throne... He was not the next in line, in other words, for the Seleucid throne. Nonetheless, he claimed to be the lawful protector of the rightful heir, and that was his nephew Demetrius Soter, who was too young to take the throne. He was, he was a, in fact, the, the son of the, the Seleucid, uh, 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 Seleucus, uh, that was the, supposed to be uh, the rightful, or the one that we saw, saw earlier. Uh, he, this is the son, Demetrius Soter, but he was too young to take the throne. I mean, he was just a kid. So Antiochus seized the throne, and as our text says, he came in peaceably, having made friends from Rome to Bergamum to Syria. And you'll see this throughout the rest of this uh, study tonight. He makes friends with Rome, Pergamum, and Syria, or along the way to Syria. And he would actually fund his cause, uh, or these uh, friends that he makes funds his cause, and he made himself pleasant to the Syrians with flattery. So all of this is part of the way that he got. And this is all, his, uh, it's, it's all written in history. I just don't want to spend as much time as we did last time. Well, he would then defeat and devastate the Egyptians in like manner. He made friends with them while plotting against them. Now, I'm going to say this a lot tonight. Does that sound familiar? That's going to be very, very much in our ears the rest of this night. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar that people make friends in, in, in high places, but they're actually plotting against them? This, this has happened down through, through history, all of history. Again, the need to overthrow, the need to attack, the need to conquer, the need to take the spoils. This is the heart of man. From the very beginning, it is the heart of man without God, because they have become gods themselves. So they made many agreements with each other, but none of those agreements stuck. Now I'm talking about Antiochus. 
Antiochus was very clever. He got many to side with him by taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Whoa! That sounds eerily familiar. He wants to take from the rich and give it to the poor. Antiochus Hood, Robin Hood, and that's what I mean by that. The Robin Hood of his time. Now, to understand verse 22, look at verse 22 if you will. But to understand verse 22, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. You must remember that the history of the tensions between the Ptolemy in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria will always take us across where? The pleasant land. What we're calling Israel. And with Antiochus' hatred for the Jewish people and all that they stand for, we see now some of the beginnings of this outward animosity in this verse. And it would only get worse from here. So the first part of the verse, verse 22, the first part of the verse, may refer to the overthrow of the Egyptian army led by Antiochus' nephew, Ptolemy Philomator, who sought to recover the territory lost to Syria. That's, that's part of the history here. But that campaign was a disaster. A disaster for Egypt. And they were swept away by a flood. This is actually recorded in history that they were swept away by a flood, as the text suggests figuratively. And yet God gave that to Daniel hundreds of years before. You see? The mention of the Prince of the Covenant now is what is essential for us to understand about Israel. The mention of the Prince of the Covenant in verse 22 of our text in Daniel 11 refers to the murder of the high priest of Israel who was known as Onias III, O-N-I-A-S, Onias III, which was, which was ordered by Antiochus in 172 B.C. In other words, his murder was ordered by Antiochus to kill the high priest of the Jews, to kill the high priest in Jerusalem, because Onias supported the Ptolemy in Egypt, and he opposed the pro-Syrian Hellenists in Jerusalem. And by the way, the pro-Syrian Hellenists were not just made up of people from Greece. They were also apostate Jews, as we'll see in just a moment. So we read on in our text in verse 23, and it says, And after the league, or alliance, the word league here in the King James means alliance, and after the alliance or the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. So once again, every time he got into some kind of an alliance, or in some kind of a way to make a, 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 you know, some kind of peace with someone, he did it deceitfully. For he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province. By the way, I want, I want to mention to you, if you go back to Revelation chapter 6, and you look at the first couple of verses there, at the breaking open of the seals, when the first seal is broken... This, this horseman comes out and is mentioned. He's on a white horse and he's wearing white. And a lot of people used to think that that might have been Jesus, but it wasn't. With the seals breaking that were leading to, to judgment, this particular uh, uh, rider of the white horse, uh, you know, with, with white uh, raiment on, 
was actually a picture of Antichrist. We're told that he holds a bow, but no arrows. That is to suggest a deceitful peace. So Antiochus, who is the type of Antichrist, or the forerunner of Antichrist, also deals the same way, deceitfully with peace. What is it that Israel is crying out for today? A nation that is surrounded by enemies, millions and millions of enemies, all around the little state of Israel that is no bigger than New Jersey. What are they crying for? What do they really want? They want peace. Unfortunately, it's going to be peace at any cost. And this is why these chapters in Revelation and in the book of Daniel are so important for us to know and understand. He shall enter into uh, uh, peaceably uh, even upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yay! And he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south, and by the way, Antiochus is the king of the north, but the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. I'll explain that in a moment. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. Now speaking of the king of the south, Egypt. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief. In other words, they're both deceitful. But then it says, and they shall speak lies at one table. But it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Okay, let's, let's try to understand that. So, keeping your fingers now in, what verses were those? 23 to 27. After defeating Egypt, Antiochus forms another deceitful treaty with the defeated king of Egypt, Ptolemy VI. Now a new Ptolemy exists, who had been absent from Egypt and his brother had taken the throne. So, so I want you to get this, okay? Here's, a, here's Ptolemy VI. There's a few other Ptolemies before him. His brother took the throne while he was away uh, from Egypt. So the treaty was, the treaty that this Ptolemy makes with Antiochus, the treaty was for Egypt to become a vassal state of Syria. He says to him, we'll, we'll, we'll be under you. You lead us. But you let me be king of Egypt. So, it was all just so that Ptolemy VI could take his throne back. He just wanted his throne back. Antiochus just wanted a power base in Egypt. That's what he wanted. And so he consolidated his power. Listen to me. He consolidated his power even more by taking the wealth that he plundered from conquered nations and redistributing it among his supporters. I'm using some key words here for understanding to tie the old with the new to tie what has happened to what will happen or is happening now. Redistribution. That is what the scriptures here in verses 23 to 27 say. 
But here's the problem for Antiochus. His days were numbered. His days were numbered. Verse 25 to 27, or verses 25 to 27, predict the invasion of Egypt by Antiochus. After his kingdom was consolidated, Antiochus moved against Egypt in 170 B.C. He was able to move his army from Syria right to the border of Egypt at a place called Pelusium, and Ptolemy and Egypt was defeated. Another battle ensued, and the Syrians won again. By the way, all these battles are taking place where? (laughs) In the pleasant land, because it's right in the way. So another battle ensued. The Syrians went again, capturing most of Egypt, except the key city of Alexandria. They did not get Alexandria. The phrase in verse 25, I want you to look at verse 25. It says, for they shall forecast devices against him. You all see that? That's verse 25. I can take it back there a couple so you can see it. For they, the last part, for they shall forecast devices against him. You all see that? that? That is, of course, speaking of... Ptolemy, this, the Ptolemy, who was, uh, who was actually betrayed by the treachery of his own advisors. He was betrayed. That's why, that's why I said what it said there in verse, uh, at, at the end of verse 25. Uh, For they shall forecast devices against him. That was due to Antiochus subverting and undermining Egypt from within. Antiochus had his spies, in other words. And people that he paid off to give him the information or to do things within Egypt. But that would backfire on him later. So the conqueror sat with the conquered at a table. Verse 27. The conqueror sat with the conquered. This has happened a lot in history, hasn't it? The conquered sits with the conqueror. After the United States uh, had won World War II, after... The dropping of the atom bomb in Japan. There was the meeting on a ship between the uh, the military leaders of the United States and the military leaders of Japan. Uh, we've all seen it probably on newsreels of some sort. It's history we should know about. But the conqueror and the conquered meet. So, they meet as though some great alliance, some great agreement has been brought about in friendship. But both the king of the north and the king of the south were very deceptive, and they were being very deceptive. Antiochus pretended friendship for his nephew Philometor by acknowledging him as Egypt's king and promising to establish his throne, but his nephew had learned from his uncle too well. Lies from both sides spoke. Uh, Lies from both sides were spoken at the table of negotiations. Gee, does that sound interesting. How many times do we hear about tables of negotiations today? And everybody just smiling and taking pictures, but they're just telling lies to one another. That's all that is. All right, we've got to move on. Let's look at verses 28 to 30. And then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant. Ah, so now he's getting what he wants, but his heart now becomes even harder against Israel. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. At the time appointed he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships of Kittim, 
shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. Now he's losing some battles, but he takes it out on Israel. Got the picture? So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. All right. So the second attack by Antiochus against Egypt didn't turn out as he planned either. This time Egypt was prepared and they got help from Kittim. Uh, in the King James it's spelled C-H-I-T-T-I-M. But it's pronounced Kittim, which is the island of Cyprus or the islands of Cyprus. Cyprus. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. The Septuagint identifies this group of people as the Romans. As the Romans. So the Romans now are helping Cyprus, Kittim, and in turn are helping the Egyptians. Uh, you know, if you read or seen the movie, you know, Cleopatra, you know, there is all this intrigue again between, you know, the Ptolemies and, and, and Cleopatra actually was from the Seleucid dynasty that went over there by marriage to Ptolemy, uh, to one of the Ptolemies. I, we said this last week. And, 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 and then when her father thought that she was going to side with him, instead she sides, sides with her husband. And, you know, so there's all that stuff going on. Well, who's also involved? The Romans. They're just starting to get, you know, their engine into high gear here. You know, and we know that the Romans are going to follow Greece as the next great empire. So we keep that in mind. So because of this, and by the way, Antiochus also has some friends in Rome too, but we'll talk about that another time. So Antiochus was effectively defeated and he would angrily take it out on the Jewish people once again. We are told in this passage that he would be assisted by those apostate Jews that had forsaken the law while those who followed the word of God were persecuted and many were put to death. And that we saw actually in verses 29 and 30. So the next section of our text tells us how Antiochus would insult the God of Israel. Because, I mean, you're not going to just go against the people. You go against their God. And you know, historically we know that to be true because of a man named Adolf Hitler. He did the very same thing in Germany. He went after the people of God to destroy the God of the people. To destroy them, not only the God of the, of the believer in the Word of God, but to destroy the very people that the Word of God says are God's people, which is Israel. So we all know about that. So it says in verse 31, An arm shall stand on this part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. I'm going to tell you what that is in a moment. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. That is uh, the apostate Jews. Uh, but the people that do know their God shall, do, shall be strong and do exploits. We'll talk about them in just a moment as well. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. 
but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Again, there's always going to be apostates who want to kind of side with whoever's in charge at the time. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Let's explain that. If you remember Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, gave himself that name, Epiphanes, which means the glorious one, the illustrious one, which is, by the way, saying what? I'm God. I'm God. As a matter of fact, in some places, people will write in in some commentaries, Antiochus, the God king, or the the God, as it were, because of that name. But, as I've said before, the people who knew him by the things that he did, and by the way, he did some very wicked things. If you look at the life of Antiochus in history, he was a very perverted man. There were many perversions as a part of his life, his own personal life. But uh, so were a lot of the Roman kings, and any heathen king, for that matter, had, had their major problems in that. But the people who knew him by the things that he did nicknamed him Antiochus Epimanes. They changed a letter. Actually, a couple of letters. To call him Antiochus the Madman. Changed one letter, and that's what he became. A madman. And this is the very reason we can call Antiochus a type or forerunner of the Antichrist. In this passage, he placed guards, that's uh, verse uh, um, 31, I believe. Yes, verse 31. He placed guards around the temple to prevent the worship of God. Now, please understand this. Today in, in the United States of America, it's already happening in all kinds of, in all parts of the world today. There are certain countries today that make it a, a, a that have made a law that says that anybody who worships God, the true God, is breaking the law. And you have to understand that in the days and times in which we live, we are struggling today in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say in the true Church of Jesus Christ, which means the true believers of Jesus Christ who gather together in the love of God, in the Word of God, knowing that they have been changed, that their lives have been changed by the work of Christ on the cross, and by the blood of Christ, and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we stand upon these things. We are being challenged today by what we learn, by what we know, and by what we teach, and by what we do. To the effect that in some places we are being told we cannot worship our God, even in our own country, a country that was founded on the Word of God, founded on the tradition of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a little upset. But I can handle it. The Lord gives me peace. And the peace that I have from the Lord is, He's still on the throne. But that's what's happening today. In this passage, he placed guards to keep them from worshiping the Lord. There have been people passing out tracts in Texas. 
I mean, we're the buckle of the Bible belt, but in Texas, there have been law enforcement officers that have gone to arrest people for passing out tracks a block away from, you know, a DPS uh, location where people will get their, their licenses, you know. Just passing out tracks. And somebody complained. They arrest them. That's in Texas. How crazy is that? They were called to prevent, these guards were used to prevent the people from worshiping on the Sabbath. And on one of the Sabbath, Antiochus had women and children slaughtered. Sound familiar? That's been happening in the Middle East now for a long, long time. Even more now because it's being recorded by this group called ISIS and they're tech savvy enough to put this all out so everybody could see it. That's a terror tactic, by the way. But we're not, afra- we're not afraid because our God is greater than ISIS. Now, here's the abomination of desolation. Antiochus had a pig slaughtered on the altar of the temple. And he forced the priest to eat the pork from this sacrifice. Priests were kosher. They had a ceremonial diet that they followed. But all of this was supported, by the way, from our text by apostate Jews. All of this was supported by apostate Jews. And I'll stop here for very quickly and just, just let you know that today, those of us who study prophecy to tell the church, to warn them of what's coming, of what's happening because Jesus is coming and we need to be ready for that. We are looked upon by a lot of the church today, and I want to say a majority of the church, what is called the church today, you know, um, evangelical Christianity or uh, if you mix that also with, with uh, Catholicism and all or, or this ecumenical movement by the way that ties in all these people they don't see things the way we're seeing it because we're, we're believing what the Bible says but they're calling us crazy for believing this and yet every day we see something happen on the news we see something happen in the, in the news that, that makes us know that all these things are happening because Jesus already predicted it the Lord predicted it the prophets predicted it and it's going to happen. And it's happening now. And we're called to warn it. You know, so whether they think that we're kind of holy rollers, I don't care. They say they, they, they love the Lord, but uh, then they, they, they march with people who, who want to, you know, have the freedom to, to uh, partake in an abomination that the Word of God says is an abomination. It's crazy. So understand this. There was a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes in Jerusalem. And Judas Maccabeus would be the one to lead a revolt against Antiochus and would defeat him. It's what came about, what brought about a, 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 not not really one of the major feasts of Israel, but a a feast that they they, uh, uh, partake in to this day. It's called uh, Hanukkah. It's around our Christmas time. And it's about this time where, where they revolted against uh, Antiochus and, and they wanted to restore 
the temple worship and they restored. Uh, uh, a miracle was done in that they went in to light the, the, uh, the seven uh, uh, candle candlestick, the menorah. And uh, God gave them, you know, it's a seven candle candlestick. God gave them enough for, for eight days of, uh, of, um, of lighting it. Uh, it was a miracle because they didn't have very much of oil to do that. So they considered a miracle from the Lord. It's a long story, and we could be here hours talking about that alone. But that's prophesied in verse 32 of our text, where it says, The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Nonetheless, many faithful would die, as always where, there is these, where, these, where these things are happening. Many faithful would die even at the hands of apostate Jews. But even before Antiochus' defeat by the Maccabean revolt and eventually he would die in Persia in 163, a lot of damage was done by Antiochus. Are you ready? I'll give this very quickly to you because of time. 80,000 Jews were killed. It is, it is estimated 80,000 Jews were killed in the time of Antiochus in, in the glorious land in, in Israel. 40,000 were taken as prisoners. Another 40,000 were sold as slaves. And the temple had been plundered and robbed at the cost of about $1 billion in, t- in today's estimation. The temple, the gold, the silver that was set apart to, uh, to honor God. But in verse 35, it says, even to, the end, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed, and we're almost done here, so give me just a couple of minutes. This terror would only last as long as the Lord had appointed it. Are you all getting me? This terror would only last as long as the Lord had appointed it. Even the persecution and the blasphemy. Even that was allowed. You might say, well, why? Well, while that is hard at times to understand, we don't understand fully why, but we have been told that in this world, we will have tribulation. But we'll, we are to be of good cheer because the Lord has overcome the world for us. We're told that, that we as believers in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. That's what, exactly what Paul, Paul said to the church. We will. But I want, I want, to, I want to give you a, a kind of a, a little uh, pre-lesson to a study that I'm working on to tie into all of this when we finish Daniel, a lesson on what persecution really is for the church. And yes, it does involve that there will be people who will die for their faith. That's been happening for 2,000 years. But there's a reason why the enemy is doing his best right now to persecute the church. And the way he persecutes the church is what we need to understand from the Scriptures. All he's trying to do is wear down the saints. Wear down the saints. To the point that if a saint can say, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm tired of this, and walk away, the enemy's just won. That's the kind of persecution he's putting on us. To wear us down. To get us to walk away. But Jesus said, don't be weary. Paul taught us, don't be weary in doing good. Don't be weary. These, are going to ha- these things are going to happen, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Okay, well, 
I gave away too much. And while it is hard at times to understand, we need to take a strong look at what is happening in our day and time to usher in the Antichrist, who is called the beast. A time is appointed that certain things must take place before the church of Jesus Christ is raptured and removed, and the restrainer is removed. So I want to close with this passage. Because it takes us back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It is not only a passage that links all of the stuff we've talked about in Antiochus today. And by the way, not even all, because the rest of the chapter starts next week. And that is going to be where we really take the issues seen in Antiochus and see them in Antichrist. And they're heavy and they're ne- it's necessary for us to hear that. But here, here's a portion of what, what Paul said in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 and following. He says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, shall not come, except there come a falling away first, an apostasy. What happened in Israel when Antiochus was there? An apostasy took place. Apostate Jews who should have been following God and serving God and worshiping God began to persecute their own brothers. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That's the word I wanted to give you uh, earlier. He is the son of perdition. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Antiochus went and put a statue of, of, of a God in the place. You know, not only was the pig sacrificed, but also putting a, a statue of Zeus in, in the holy place. Uh, in, in essence, you know, saying this is really the God, but thinking of himself as being the God because he had the, he had the power to do that. And then he goes on and says, uh, uh, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Now here's Paul saying, listen, I've told you about this. Well, he's telling us today, I want you to keep hearing about this because now you're in the generation where many of these things will happen. I I wonder if you knew that. Did you know that? That's how close it is. And then he says, and now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. What is restraining the enemy this beast, this Antichrist from being revealed. Well, notice that it says, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. I mean, the, the mystery of iniquity is already here. John writes in his letter, first, first John, he tells us of the spirit of Antichrist that's already here. Not the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist. And he says, the mystery of iniquity already does work. Only he who now letteth or restrains will let until he be taken out of the way. And and when we studied this back in November, I believe, we were talking about the Holy Spirit that is the restrainer, but the Holy Spirit being in the church, when the church is taken out of the way, the restrainer, the power of the restrainer now is let loose so so that the Antichrist can begin to do what he's got to do. He will be revealed then at the beginning of the seven year period that we were talking about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, or 24 through 27. All right, so then... Shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall be destroyed with the brightness of his coming? That's exciting because, you know, that just tells us even though there's a lot of stuff still to happen, God's got this in control and he's going to be judged. 
And uh, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, underlying lying in your Bibles, lying because that's all that we've been talking about today and last week. All the lies that were going on in all of the uh, alliances that were taking place. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. That's all we saw last week and this week. Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. To receive not means they willfully did not receive it. It was given, but they willfully did not receive the truth or the love of the truth. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Read Romans chapter 1 tonight, especially verses uh, 16 to the end. Romans 1. Can you write that down and read it tonight? That's your homework. I want you all to see what God's, what, what, what Paul says that's going to be happening where God, you know, who, who, who everybody really knows there is one, but they just don't want to believe it. He's going to say, you know, these people are going to have their minds turned over to a debased mind, a reprobate mind. That's pretty heavy. This is, this is what he's saying here. That they should believe... By the way, in, in the Greek, it's the lie. The lie. Now, in your margins, write Genesis 3. The lie. Did God really say that? He didn't really tell you to do that. He doesn't want you to be gods like Him. So, eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lastly, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God is serious about sin after he has given everybody an opportunity to hear the truth, to hear the word, to hear the love of God, to hear the love of Christ, to hear the love of Christ on the cross, the death of Jesus for the love of Christ toward man who, lo- who he loved so much that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, we could go on and on and on. God is serious about sin in these last days. And by the way, let me close with this. I'm already a little over time. By the way, there is a massive shift now in time in verse 36. The next verse where we're starting next week, a massive shift here in verse 36. Because we shift from focusing on the shadow... Antiochus is a shadow to the man that he foreshadows. Now, we will see in time Antichrist being described. In one, from one verse to the next, we go from the past to the near future. And you're going to be amazed at what we will learn about the Antichrist. Some of it may, may even uh, turn over you know, the things that you might have learned a long time ago. But again, we've come a long way. New players have kind of come, come up and we're going to see now how all of this will fit. But let me leave you with this one thought. He must be a pastor, you're saying, because he says, I'm going to finish, but then he doesn't finish. Let me leave you with one thought. A lot of people will be looking for Antichrist 
And they think it's kind of like, wow, this is fascinating. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, church, we don't look for Antichrist. We look for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, keep looking up. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. Keep looking up. I'm coming. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you will be also. Can I encourage you with that? Those are the words of Jesus to his people, to us. Yes, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have to go through some times of, times of trial. We're in the United States of America today, and what are they talking about today? All kinds of things that can happen in the next year. Dealing with the financial issues. and Does God not provide for us? I'm ready for the next half hour here, guys. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I better let you go. You're looking at me real funny like, it's time you put the brakes on here, Pastor. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time. I know the, the chapter 11 is a very tough chapter, Lord God. We have to go back and look at things clearly so that we can realize that what has happened will happen again. And we're seeing that happen today. So I pray, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will give us wisdom and understanding to not fear, but to stand strong and to stand fast in the armor of God that you have placed upon us. And to know, Lord God, that no matter what takes place each and every day, we have to wake up each and every day. We have to thank you for life each and every day. We have to thank you for your word. We thank you for our families. We thank you for the blessings you've given us. We thank you that you meet our every need. No matter what happens in this world, you're going to meet our every need. And, and Lord, we just want to continue to serve you until that day when Jesus just comes and, and takes us home. But there's, there's, there's a plan in all of that as well. And we don't want it to just sound like, you know, we're, you know, some people just don't want to accept the fact that, Lord, you're coming to take your people out of the way before true judgment happens. And, and it's, a, it's a, the most major judgment that's ever going to ever happen on this earth. So we just ask you to bless our people here with encouragement and strength and wisdom and grace. How thankful I am, Lord to have the privilege of, of, of being a, a part of your voice through your word to the hearts of those here. We thank you. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.